Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the declaration of the gospel that Christ is risen and that Christ is ascended and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that you would direct our faith all the more to this reality this day, that your spirit would help us to understand your word. Indeed, that you would give us hearts that understand, eyes that see and ears that hear. Bless us now, we ask, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. At a concert in South Bend, Indiana on September 30th, 1974, Elvis Presley was reading some of the signs that fans were holding up in the crowd, and one of them read something to the effect, Elvis is king. And he replied, The thought is beautiful, dear. I'm not going to try to imitate Elvis. <laughs> the thought is beautiful, dear, and I love you for it. But I haven't been caught up in this thing, and I can't accept this kingship thing, because to me there's only one There's only one, which is Christ. When you stop and think about it, that's pretty sound theology coming from Elvis. And while we at St. Mark have made Christ's ascension a point of emphasis over the years, I still wonder if the reality of Christ's reign is still kind of too much out there or up there, or if we're still suffering to a degree from a dispensational hangover and associated theology that dominated the church's thinking uh, in more recent history. The kingship of Christ is its a reality that stares us in the face. But how often do we miss it? Is it so obvious that we don't see it? It's almost as if all the clues are there, but we're slow to put them together for one reason or another. You know, even the sons of Korah understood the kingship of Yahweh, of Yahweh God, all the way back in Psalm 47. You know, what did we just chant a few minutes ago? Verse 2, for Yahweh the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Verse 7, for God is king of all the earth, sing praises with the psalm. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Notice the use of the present tense. Those were realities when it was written. And of course, we understand this to be all the more the case now that Christ has come, that he is the fulfillment of what the sons of Korah declare. Psalm 2 is another place where we can go uh, and where the implication is clear that Yahweh rules the nations. It is further evident throughout the Old Testament with the rise and fall of nations and rulers, even as declared to and by the prophets. Now, I realize that we don't make uh, as much of the ascension as we do Christmas or Easter or even Pentecost, And perhaps we can count today's fellowship meal as an ascension feast. And it's true that the ascension is always on a Thursday, which increases the challenge to remember and celebrate it. And at least once we have had an ascension day service, and perhaps we'll do so again in the future. And, of course, there's the sense in which we celebrate the ascension every Sunday, just as we do Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. But the ascension was a significant moment in Jesus' life and ministry. It was important to Jesus. And while we rightly describe Jesus as setting his sights on Jerusalem where he had to go to suffer and die, while we correctly portray him as focusing on the cross and setting the pattern for a cruciform life, the cross wasn't the only focal point of Jesus' vision. With each telling of his disciples that he had to go up to Jerusalem to suffer and be crucified, Jesus also told them he would rise after three days. But also recall from John chapters 13 to 17 
that Jesus prepares the disciples for his not being around, for his departure back to the Father. There's even an ascension theme to John's resurrection account. And that's hardly accidental, especially in light of the fact that John is sandwiched between Luke and Acts, both of which recount the ascension. In Luke 9.51, we read, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. See, Luke writes his gospel in such a way that the ascension is the destination, where Jesus is going. And then he ends his gospel with that event explicitly taking place. So Luke gives specific attention to the ascension. John picks up on that theme in the second half of his gospel, and then their respective resurrection accounts have significant thematic overlaps. Sometime read Luke 24 and then read John 20, and you'll find this to be the case. And while we're right to see how the Holy Spirit constructed the gospel text with this kind of progression of one building off the other, we're also right to see the unity of Luke's writing from his gospel to the Acts of the Apostles. Remember, Luke is the author of both the gospel that bears his name and the book of Acts. Although separated by the gospel of John, and understandably so, you can view the book of Acts as the sequel to Luke. If you read the book of Luke and then go right to the book of Acts, you find a significant overlap of themes and language. And just to be clear, Luke is recounting the ascension of Christ at both the end of the gospel, of his gospel, and at the beginning of Acts. There are actually some who contest that being the case, saying that the end of Luke is recording a different event, but the strength of arguments favors Luke giving two ascension accounts and simply including different details. There's nothing wrong or inconsistent in his doing so, even as the Gospels record the same events taking place in the life of Jesus, but give different details that are consistent with the theological emphases of the story each Gospel writer is telling. Well, Luke's doing the same thing. And by beginning in Acts where his Gospel ended, he provides a literary bridge between his accounts. You know, it isn't so different uh, from movies that you've seen over the years where a sequel begins where the first one ended. You know, it's a single story in two parts, and Luke takes the liberty of filling in a bit more what took place at Christ's ascension. The Luke account is rather brief, the Acts account a bit more detailed. So then what is revealed to us by Luke in his gospel? Let's, let's start there. Well, first of all, we should note that Luke's gospel basically begins and ends with worship in the temple. After his formal opening, Luke tells us the story of Zechariah serving in the temple when Gabriel meets him and tells him that Elizabeth, his barren wife, would bear a son who would be a new Elijah and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then Luke ends with the disciples worshiping the ascended Christ and continually in the temple blessing God. And what Luke wants you to see, what he wants you to grasp in the telling of his story, is that all that was promised in the prologue, all that was foretold in those opening chapters, the words uttered by Simeon when he holds the Christ child, the rejoicing of Anna at beholding the redemption of Jerusalem, that they have come to pass. They have been fulfilled in Christ. Another interesting parallel to consider is the scene of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple and the Jesus who remains hidden to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Both accounts take place at the time of Passover. Mary and Joseph hurry back to the city looking for Jesus. Cleopas and his wife, most likely, are headed to Emmaus, but after Jesus reveals himself, hurry back to Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary search for Jesus for three days. Cleopas and wife were talking of the things that had happened even as Jesus had been absent for three days. 
When Jesus is found by Mary and Joseph, he answers their questions. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be among my father's affairs? Here already in the second chapter of Luke, thematically, Jesus returns to his father. To the couple on the road, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus speaks of necessity in both cases to the respective couples, both of whom were anxious and troubled by circumstances surrounding him. So we should see the unity of Luke's gospel message about this Jesus, who is the fulfillment of what was long foretold. How Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, and all of the Bible is about Jesus. Because Luke is connecting Israel's history, connecting their story to this Jesus, who is the fulfillment of their story, and even the story of the world. Furthermore, it's interesting to note that the final first meal, uh, to note that the first meal mentioned in the Bible is Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit. And how are they described in that moment when met with new unwelcome knowledge? What happens? The eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked. Now another couple, Cleopas and his wife, were at a table and Jesus blesses, breaks, blesses, breaks the bread and gives it to them. And how are they described? What happens? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They're confronted with a new, deeply powerful and wonderful knowledge. What does this mean? What should we understand here? Is Luke hinting at a reversal of Genesis 3? Yes, that's precisely the case. Luke's saying this is ultimate redemption. This is the meal which long signifies that the long exile of human of the human race, not just of Israel, is over at last. This is the start of the new creation. This is why repentance and forgiveness of sins are to be announced to all the nations. And the disciples, the apostles, eventually get this and then they understand the implications. Bear in mind that when they take the gospel out to all nations... It isn't just to offer people a new way of being religious, but to declare the message that Jesus is the world's true Lord. The Creator God is bypassing the networks of imperial power and communication. Jesus and His followers are now to confront the kingdoms of the world. And that's exactly what we see taking place in Acts. Jesus tells the apostles that they'll be the witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's precisely the pattern of expansion of the gospel that we read about. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but basically in Acts 1 through 12, we read of the apostles' initial proclamation in Jerusalem and Judea. In chapter 8, uh, Philip ministers in Samaria. Then in Acts 13 to 28, we witness the gospel going out in the wider Roman Empire, and not by Paul only. But then he arrives at last in Rome itself to announce the kingdom of the only true God. So what Jesus told the disciples to do is taking place. They're fulfilling the commission placed upon them. They continue the kingdom work begun in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's Luke's arrangement of things, the direction of his gospel as it preludes into Acts, and then how Jesus' commission to the apostles is fulfilled. Now let's let's consider some of the specifics in these ascension texts, starting with Luke, and we'll back up to verses 36 to 43 of Luke 24. Jesus appears to his disciples, you remember, uh, as we just heard. And by Jesus' own words, Luke makes it clear that Jesus is not a spirit and he's not a ghost. He's not a disembodied entity of some kind. No, he's a man with flesh and bones. He can be touched. He can eat and so on. 
And then Jesus instructs them, as did Cleopas and his wife, about all how, about how all of the scriptures spoke of him, foretold what had to take place, that the coming Messiah would be a suffering Messiah, but would rise again on the third day. And as a result, the message of these things, these events, the gospel, would be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus tells the disciples that they are witnesses to these things. Not only in the sense they should testify about these things, uh, be able to speak to them, nor only in the sense that they actually saw the risen Savior, but also that their testimony is true. There's two or more of them to establish the validity of the claim that Jesus is risen from the dead. Then Jesus tells them to remain in the city, literally to sit in the city, until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is sent to them. They'll be clothed with power on high. They will receive the garments of their office, of their calling. And in the space of just a few verses, Luke recounts the ascension itself. In verse 30, uh, sorry, in verse 50, it says that Jesus led them out. The word used here is also used in reference to the exodus from Egypt. And when we pay attention to the geographical details that are supplied, and then take a look at a map, we discover that Bethany was east of Jerusalem. East is is an exodus direction. Coupled with the information in Acts 1, we know that Jesus' ascension took place on the mount called Olivet, where Bethany was located. So putting the pieces together, we have this exodus out of Jerusalem, the greater than Moses leading out the new Israel, who then journey to a mountain where Jesus speaks to them, where he instructs them. Of course, what should this remind us of? But when God gave his word, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, entered into covenant with them and instructed them as to what kind of people they were going to be, how they were to take and live in the promised land. Jesus does something similar here. He speaks to the apostles, gives them final instructions, reminds them again um, of the promised Holy Spirit. Furthermore, Acts 1.3 tells us that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples over a 40-day period. You can probably think of plenty of other occasions when the number 40 is significant and when it appears in Israel's history. Noah in the flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on Sinai for 40 days. Jesus was tempted 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. So why 40? Well, notice that Jesus led them out of Jerusalem. He exodused them out of the city. Why did he do that? Because it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. And Jesus is symbolically delivering his people, delivering the church from this judgment. We should view Israel as another Egypt. The people are in bondage, and not just to the Romans, but to the corrupted teaching of the Jews that imprisons people. Also, the church experiences a 40-year wilderness experience of sorts between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70 until Jerusalem is finally destroyed. The book of Hebrews recounts or connects this period of time to a new wilderness experience. Jesus the greater Moses leads his people out of the house of bondage and into the new land, which is all the earth. Well, what else do we find in Luke 24? Jesus blessed the disciples and then parted from them and was carried up into heaven. In Acts, we read that a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, it's probably pretty natural for us to think of a physical cloud, a, a white puffy one. And then maybe we wonder what it would be like to ride on the cloud. And certainly there was a physical cloud. But we need to ask ourselves if there's a further significance to the cloud and what it might picture. What are some other occasions where clouds make a significant appearance? 
Well, on Sinai, a cloud descended on the top of the mountain. There was the pillar of cloud that led Israel in the wilderness and the glory cloud that settled upon the tabernacle and temple. This cloud symbolized the presence of God, even the Holy Spirit. Even as you may recall such an appearance in the New Testament at the transfiguration of Jesus. Well, that's, that's what we need to be thinking about first. Not that Jesus went up into the sky and then into outer space and is in a galaxy far, far away. Now, that's to misunderstand what the Bible means when it talks about heaven. We need to understand that heaven is God's space, which intersects with our space, but transcends it. It is, if you like, a further dimension of our world, not a place far removed at one extreme of our world. The ascension of Jesus is his going, not way beyond the stars, but into this space, this dimension. I know I've talked about this before, and it, it almost always sounds strange or like something from science fiction. But that's closer to what the Bible teaches than some of the popular conceptions of heaven. And perhaps the story that we read in 2 Kings 6 gives us a further glimpse into this reality. But we need to understand that Jesus ascended into heavenly glory, into the presence of God. He ascended to the throne in heaven. Well, there's another connection here that we do well to make. Jesus blesses the apostles, which is a priestly thing to do. Basically, Jesus is pronouncing a benediction upon them. Uh, Listen to the sequence again from Leviticus 9. We've heard this in recent weeks in our Sunday school class. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the purification offering and the ascension offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the ascension offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, do you hear how the sequence, the, the sequence there and how it matches what we read in Luke 24? First of all, Aaron lifts his hands and blesses them. Luke 24:50, lifting up his hands, Jesus blessed them. After Moses and Aaron come out of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the, the people are blessed again. And what? The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Well, how did the glory appear? Well, in the cloud. And then what happens? Fire came out and consumed the offerings. Now, you can hear the overlap of language and blessing and glory, but what's missing at the ascension? Fire. Fire doesn't come for another ten days when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, consuming the apostles, whose lives become acceptable sacrifices in their service to the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. It's also worth noting that this text in Leviticus 9 is at the end of Aaron's ministry and investiture, and then in the next chapter we read of the sin and death of Nadab and Abihu. So a greater Aaron, a greater priest is needed. And here he is in Jesus, who is now at the end of his earthly ministry, and he blesses those who are to continue his work. And perhaps we can also add to this sequence the response of worship, falling down before the Lord. Israel did so, and so did the apostles. So the ascension of Christ leads to worship. Not only for the very fact that we now have access to the throne room of heaven so that we might worship there, but also for the fact of what the ascension of Christ signifies. Consider that there is now, there's, there's one now in heaven who shares our flesh and blood. Jesus is the first man to enter into the Father's throne room in heaven. You know, the the dust of earth is seated on the throne of heaven. The fellowship Adam lost the second Adam gained back. 
And as those who are descendants of this second Adam, we can be assured that Jesus' destiny and destination are ours as well. We too will be in the Father's glorious presence when we receive our resurrected bodies. As one pastor puts it, because we are in union with Christ, His ascension is our ascension. His entrance into the Father's throne room is our entrance. His access is now our access. This is why Paul says we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and our lives are hid with God in Christ in the heavens. The ascension is good news because heaven and earth are no longer barred from one another. See, this event, the ascension, is a completion of the resurrection. Not just something that God puts in place to explain why Jesus isn't walking around on the earth anymore. As priest and king, Jesus has to take his rightful place, seated, not standing, seated upon his throne from where he rules over all. And according to Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus reigns in heaven until all his enemies have been defeated. You know, we, we shouldn't think that Jesus left the earth to get a head start because things well, are going to get so much worse on the earth and he was escaping to heaven and so we should want to do that too. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm sure I've, I've, I've said this before, but Jesus is victorious now. He is victorious today. And even though it's a slow process, he's about the business of bringing all things under his rule and reign through the church. Further, Christ's present victorious position informs our expectations about the future. For one, we know that Jesus is going to come back. The two angels tell the disciples as much in Acts 1. We also know this to be the case from other New Testament passages. But by no means does this mean that the church is to think that the world is getting worse and worse. Not in the least. And studies have shown that the world is actually getting better where the gospel goes and takes root, society improves. Now this doesn't mean that there aren't setbacks, because there are. You know, when, when the tide comes in, the water still goes back into the ocean, but slowly and steadily more ground is covered. Well, the new creation has already begun. The pouring out at Pente of the Spirit at Pentecost signifies at, as much. When is the Spirit present? The Spirit is present at the creation of the world. His presence at Pentecost echoes the same. Still more, the fact that Jesus is bodily in heaven, that His flesh and blood, blood and bones are there, is further testimony that God really did create the world, say it was good, and that He has and is redeeming it through the work of Christ and the Spirit. See, we are in no way to despise the fact that we are human. Quite the opposite, in fact. As one scholar notes, the ascension affirms the true and lasting value of being human. The risen Jesus was more human, not less than he was before. His risen humanness is the affirmation of his previous humanness, only now without the frailty and the dying, which before then he shared with the rest of us. His resurrection is thus God's way of saying that there is such a thing as genuine humanness. And it's in this new humanity that we once again realize the purpose for which we were created, to rule and fill the earth, even as God told Adam. And amazingly, and in ways we cannot fully comprehend today, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and He uses us to fulfill His purposes of dominion in the earth. And all of this is at the heart of our consideration of understanding the Scriptures as all of Scripture for all of life, of, of what we call a reformed world and life view. That's what it's all about. 
cultivating biblical wisdom and pursuing a life that is fully engaged with creation and that doesn't seek to define spirituality in some type of disembodied way. You know, think about the fact that Jesus offers bread and wine at his table. Well, that, that testifies as much to the same. See, these elements take time and technology to produce. Our application of the creation, our work creates these things. And also think about how meals, how eating and drinking are so closely tied to the resurrection and ascension stories in Luke. The resurrected Jesus is revealed in Emmaus through the breaking of the bread. Shortly thereafter, he appears to the other disciples and eats with them. Now consider the sequence. Jesus instructs the two on the way to Emmaus and then breaks bread and they understand and they understand there's word and sacrament. There's word and sign. In the story that follows, Jesus eats first and then instructs. His eating helps them to understand his identity and to then listen. He gives them the message to proclaim of his suffering and resurrection, of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and then reminds them of the promised gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father. So through eating, Jesus proves the reality of his presence among them. But this reality is different than before his resurrection. His words to them before he died have been fulfilled. He's now with them in a different way and wouldn't be with them indefinitely. And perhaps there's a pattern, even a liturgical pattern in this for us. Jesus instructs us about him and what he has done and our eating and drinking with him further affirms who he is and what he's accomplished. Likewise, Jesus is the host of, of his meal. And he's glad to eat and drink with us, which then also provides a foundation for the mission he has for us and blesses us to do. And while the mission is multifaceted with more applications than we can possibly number, it is at the very least a mission of peace. In fact, peace is a major theme in Luke. In chapter 2, the angelic host announced the birth of Jesus, declaring glory to God in the highest on, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, he instructs them, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Chapter 19, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, riding upon the colt, the whole multitude of his disciples proclaimed, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In chapter 24 of 36, when the two disciples are recounting their experience when Jesus, with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and in the breaking of the bread, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. If you jump over to John 20, you find that Jesus' characteristics greeting in the midst of the community is peace. So whether the community on mission or the community gathered at the Lord's table... The greeting is one of peace. And Paul drew upon such greetings, such liturgical greetings, at the beginning and end, or both of, of, his, of each of his letters. And in Paul's greetings, peace is always associated with grace, God's gift in the new covenant. Peace is the effect of grace. And the meal that we eat with Jesus is a meal of peace. We, we are at rest here because of his grace to us. We are right with God because of what Christ has done. We are right with one another because of what Christ has done. We're at peace. And Christ having accomplished all that was required of Him, of the Father, 
When he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10. The ascension of Christ is a proclamation of peace. He's won. He's victorious. He has ushered in the peace that can only be known on the other side of war. And he's decisively won that war. Yes, his enemies still rail against him and his, and his people as they are made his footstool. But his kingdom and rule are one of peace. He's made the peace by the sacrifice of himself. A peace that the church proclaims and offers to the whole world. And while we may not have a dedicated Ascension celebration yet, consider that we celebrate an Ascension feast every Sunday at the Lord's table. Jesus gladly welcomes us to join Him, to be with Him, to be with the Father, to be where the course of His ministry led. Here there is grace. Here there is peace. Here you are fed these things. And I hope your faith grasps the primacy and importance of this meal and why you need it and why your children need it, and why you shouldn't sacrifice what Jesus offers here for other things. You need this meal for the mission. You need this grace for the righteousness that you're to seek as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You need these signs of peace to proclaim peace, to practice peace in service to Jesus, the King of Peace. And you need these signs of victory of Christ's rule and reign over all things to remind your faith of these realities when the headlines may cause you to wonder if Christ really is the king or not. Well, he is. And you're told that here as you're gathered before his throne. You're shown that here as you come to his table. And your faith declares this truth in praise and petition and thanksgiving for your exodus from sin and death into the life of blessed obedience to His commands. So as servants of Christ, be renewed in your faith, sure of His promises for His church and the world, and be renewed in your resolve to serve the ascended Jesus, the true and only King. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank You for the way in which Your Word is written and how you would impress the truth upon our hearts and lives. Indeed, may your spirit use this, your word this day, to continue to guide us in faith, to direct us to look unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at your right hand in glory. Indeed, may we continue to behold him by faith there, and be so encouraged and renewed in our faith, and strengthened by you in your word and at the table that has been provided, that we may all the more faithfully serve you in the week to come in our respective callings to the honor and glory of your name for the building up of the body, your church, and for the spreading of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.